0: Hey there, welcome to Live Wire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are looking to broaden our horizons. First up, by talking to food writer Cecily Wong about her book, Gastro Obscura, which features fascinating food stories from all over the world, stuff that you have probably not heard about, like psychedelic honey that was used as a weapon at one point, and also the time that they handed out champagne as like a sports energy drink to people running in the London Olympic marathon which went not great. Then we're going to talk to Grammy Award nominee Andrew Bird about how he balances what he describes as his painful shyness with being a public figure and how he used whistling as a security blanket when he was filming the TV show Fargo. Then he's going to play us a song from his latest album. So that's the plan. Let's head out on an adventure, y'all. One that gets started right after this. Hey there, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going all right, although this week I am really overcoming some obstacles, namely my cat unplugging (laughs) the various audio equipment in this room that I'm in right now, so if I can just keep (laughs) bubbles at bay, you and I can actually have an episode of LiveWire. What do you think?
2: Maybe she's training for a job in tech support.
0: She needs a lot of training, because right now... (laughs) (laughs) She's whatever the opposite of support is. Are you ready to play a little station location identification examination?
2: Oh, yeah. All
0: right. This is where I talk about a place in the country where Livewire is on the radio. Elena's got to guess the location that I am describing. Now, here's the thing. I was personally unfamiliar with this particular city, but I want to go there based on all of these hints. So I want you to know, Elena, that if, if you... You know, if you find yourself grasping here, it's because this is a very this is a somewhat out of the way place. But it's got some interesting details. The television series Roseanne was set in the fictional town of Lanford, but it was actually modeled after this place. Oh, so it's somewhere in Illinois. Okay, wow. Yes, you're already narrowing it down. You've got the correct state. Um, how about this? Max Adler, who was once the vice president of Sears and Roebuck. And the benefactor to the Adler Planetarium was born and raised in this place.
2: I'm just going to start naming towns in Illinois that I know. So, Skokie, Illinois.
0: Not Skokie. Uh, this city was once called the butter capital of the world. Ooh.
2: What about Abe Lincoln's old stomps? Springfield, Illinois.
0: Not Springfield, not Skokie. It starts with an E
2: elena illinois (laughs)
0: elgin illinois where we're on w e p s fm other things to know about uh, elgin uh part of the comedy dennis the menace was set there and also parts of the film contagion and nightmare on elm street were filmed in elgin illinois
2: imagine if all those three films were combined together with roseanne that would be something to see (laughs) all right should we get to the show Let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's... This week,
3: writer Cecily Wong. We as Americans are doing some of the most bizarre stuff with food. <laughs> like, you know, if you apply a lens from another country, I mean, the amount of cheese that we eat is really mm-hmm. grotesque. Like, people, <laughs> people find that
2: very, very strange. <laughs> with music by Andrew Byrd.
4: I'm interested in things that might tell us what we're made of. I think they just make nice metaphors for what it is to be human.
2: And our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Lou Birmingham! Hey, thank you so much, Elena
0: Passarello. Thanks to everyone tuning in all over the country, including... Elgin, Illinois, where we're on W-E-P-S-F-M. We've got a great show in store for you all this week. Of course, we asked LiveWire listeners a question. We asked, what's a yum for you that's a yuck for most other people? Like, what's something you really like that makes you feel like you're not in the majority of folks when it comes to that thing? We're going to hear those responses coming up in just a few minutes. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show. There's some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what's the best news you heard all week?
2: Okay, I learned about a new person and a new occupation this week. The person's name is Chelsea Brown. She's mm-hmm. a genealogist, which I've heard of before, but she's also an heirloom investigator. Mwah, ah, ah. What does that mean? I don't know why I made that seem sinister. This is a very heartwarming story. So she uses artifacts to trace family histories, the histories of towns, I'm assuming. She just finds the stories inside these antiques and left behind things. And she's gotten so good at it that she actually appeared in a segment on the Kelly Clarkson show.
0: Okay, that's the big time. When you get on Kelly Clarkson, you know that that you're at the top of your game.
2: National treasurer Kelly Clarkson, friend to all genealogists, Mm -hmm. I think, as she's known. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so a woman named Dottie Kearney was watching this episode of Kelly Clarkson, and it immediately made her think of this pile of letters that she's been holding on to for 30 years. When she was renovating her house in Staten Island in the 1990s, they opened up a wall, and this bound-together thing of letters between a soldier and his wife in World War II popped out. But Dottie, uh, back then, of course, there was not really any internet to speak of, and she's not particularly computer savvy, so she had no way of figuring out who these people were and how to get the letters back to them. So she immediately called Chelsea Brown, heirloom investigator to the stars. And Chelsea was so excited to help, but she was pretty sure that at this point the letter writers would be deceased Mm -hmm. because these letters were from the early 40s. So she focused on finding the families so at least those letters could get back to the families. And she used MyHeritage.com to track down the descendants of Claude and Marie Smythes, and she found their grandson's Facebook page. The grandson thought this was a scam, so it took a little bit of time to sort of like, uh, you know, validate this work. I have
0: information about your (laughs) ancestors. I just need you to send me your date of birth and credit card number.
2: Exactly. But eventually, uh, Chelsea Brown was vetted, and then Tom managed to put her in touch with his mother, Carol Bolin, who is 76 and living in Vermont, but that house in Staten Island was her girlhood home. And Chelsea Brown sent the letters to Carol Bolin and Carol Bolin says, I recognized my dad's handwriting right away. It's been so long since I saw it and so long since I heard his voice. And the letters, they they have a couple of quotes of the letters in this article and they're just so darling. The letters that uh, the soldier wrote his wife back in the 1940s, they include quotes like, I do hope you will be feeling better soon. So long, honey. Glad to hear you attended the church suppers. You are lucky to have won that pie.
1: <laughs> Love and oh kisses,
2: gosh. and a big, huge hug. Your hubby Claude.
0: <laughs> Maybe I've just watched too much Ken Burns, but I just have this feeling like when we were writing letters a long time ago, they were just they were just so different than the way that we like text each other now. You know. Oh yeah.
2: <laughs> There are no emojis at all in these uh, 80-year-old letters between Claude and Marie, FYI, which maybe might be kind of good.
0: I can't even convey myself in, like, traditional words anymore. I need the emoji that's kind of, like, like rolling its eyes. That's now more how I express myself than with the written word, which is pretty sad for everyone. But it's a great story that this family was able to be reunited with these great love letters uh, between their their ancestors. I've actually got a story this week that I saw that involves a couple of people that are also maybe on the sort of a bit older side of life, they are Sandy Hazlip and Ellie Hamby, who are both 81 years old and inspired by the Jules Verne novel Around the World in 80 Days, decided (laughs) that they would travel around the world in 80 days when they turned 80. (gasps) Problem was, there was a pandemic that you might have heard about, which got in the way of their plans, and so they are now getting to go out on their trip around the world. They're on a mission to see all seven continents, nine wonders of the world, and visit 18 countries in 80 days. They've already set foot in Antarctica. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) At 81 is pretty good. They've flown over Mount Everest, and they are just having a grand time. They were talking to CBS television about it. And one of the things I thought was kind of interesting was, you know, as you get older in life, it could be more and more challenging to deal with like um, economy travel. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm 46 and I, you know, shudder to think about flying in the middle seat at the back of the plane. And here's the thing despite being 81 years old, they are not flying, you know, like premium class or like extra legroom or whatever. They're doing this economy style, Elena. So, mm-hmm. Sandy Hazelip, she said that other. Uh, women in particular have seen their traveling exploits and wanted to travel with them and she said we don't travel first-class So when we have other ladies, especially who say I'd love to travel with you too The first thing I always do is I look at their hands if they are well manicured. They do not want to travel with us <laughs> I love. It. They're keeping it real this reminds me of how my mom travels my mom will fly from Seattle to Philadelphia by way of Bangladesh if it is a cheaper <laughs> cheaper ticket. I love this for uh, for Sandy and Ellie. The other thing, too, is, you know, if your, let's say, mom or grandma was out traveling the world in 80 days and they're 81 years old, you might be a little worried. Yeah. Not Ellie Hambly's kids. She says, my daughter is not too concerned. She just says, well, if mom falls out of a hot air balloon in Egypt <laughs> or off a mountain... <laughs> that's fine. She's living the life she wanted to live. Yeah. <laughs> that's an amazing uh, approach to life. And I love that the whole family is in on this. I mean, what a way to go. If, if you've got to go at 81, falling out of a hot air balloon in Egypt, I mean, that's memorable. you got to say that at least.
2: Nothing if not memorable,
0: yes. That's right. So the big adventure that Sandy Hazlip and Ellie Hamby are currently on That's the best news that I heard this week. All right, speaking of adventurous, out-of-the-way things. Let's get our first guest on the show. She's searched the planet in pursuit of the most incredible ingredients, food adventures, and edible wonders from all seven continents. And yes, Elena, in case you were wondering, that does include Antarctica, where she can tell you where the best barbecue prawns are available. Uh, The result of all of this research is the beautiful New York Times bestseller, Gastro Obscura, an explorer's guide to food. It's truly a feast for the eyes, and the mind take a listen to this it's our conversation with cecily wong recorded at the alberta rose theater in portland hi cecily hello hello welcome to the show thank
3: you for having me
0: you were born in hawaii but uh, you grew up in oregon
3: yeah i was born in hawaii moved to eugene oregon when i was seven
0: How adventurous were you as an eater, as a kid, in Eugene, Oregon?
3: You know, I I think that adventurous eating has really come a long way since I was a a kid growing up in Eugene, Oregon. Um, Mm. As a kid from Hawaii, I ate a lot of foods that other people didn't eat and didn't recognize, Mm. And so for me, it was completely normal. And for other people, it was kind of more bizarre. Mm. So I don't know. I think I, I think I got like my sea legs for eating strange things as I traveled, as I moved to New York and got exposed to a lot more things. But now, I mean, I'll eat anything, which is <laughs> yeah. part of, yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm wondering, this, this book is an outgrowth of the Gastro Obscura website, which is really fascinating. But I'm wondering how you keep both that website and this book from just becoming get a load of what people eat. Mm. For right? sure,
3: yeah. I mean, that was one of our our main goals in writing this book, launching this website, is that there was no yuck factor when right. when it was choosing all, yums. all. You know, all yums are like ooze. You know, like <laughs> what what is that? So, you know, you think you think like weird foods. You think bugs. You think organs. You know, things like that. And you know, they're just foods. Mm-hmm. Like these are these are things that we are not super familiar with. But like, I um, I was just down at South by Southwest, and I met this amazing bug chef. And I think that we're all going to be eating bugs
0: really soon. I ate so many bugs on my jog today.
2: (laughs) Exactly.
0: A generation of
2: gnats.
0: (laughs) What do you think? Uh, Could have used some salt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But right, like the, the idea being that there's a lot of food that seems odd or surprising to us, but it's just something that someone's eating somewhere because it's the food that's available to them. They enjoy it. And it's really easy to other it or be sort of, quote unquote grossed out by stuff but obviously that's not the goal of any of this stuff that you guys are doing.
3: Totally and, and what we found is that we we as Americans are doing some of the most bizarre stuff with food like if, if you know if you apply a, a lens from another country I mean the amount of cheese that we eat is really <laughs> grotesque like people people find that very very strange This is Livewire from
0: PRX we're listening back to a conversation that we recorded with gastro obscura writer cecily wong when we come back elena and i will be sampling some miracle berries uh, which is not a code name for edibles although that would be a pretty good (laughs) code name for that anyway stay with us much more live wire in just a moment hey elena What we're Mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you.
1: Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zebiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make z your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to Zbiotics.com/slash. LiveWire to get 15% off your first order when you use LiveWire at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com LiveWire and use the code LiveWire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to ZBiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times.
0: Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are listening back to a conversation we had with the writer Cecily Wong about her book, Gastro Obscura, and Explorer's Guide to Food. Let's pick that up live from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. I was wondering about the process of, of what you decided to put into the book because there's all these posts on the website and I guess a ton of information that you then had to kind of sort through, prioritize. How did you decide what was in and what was out?
3: Yeah. So the process took about four years. It was it was a heavy lift, and it wasn't it wasn't just me. I have a co-author, Dylan Thuris, um, and then we have a whole edit team. And so it's basically their entire job just to kind of scour the, the earth and the internet for the you know most obscure things they can find. And then um, Atlas Obscure, if you're familiar with the website, has this massive community of users who are super active and they they write in literally every day saying, I'm, I ate this, it's amazing, check it out, I'm from here, this is what you have to eat. And so we just got this flood of tips every day and we just we sorted through them and we just kind of jumped down dozens of rabbit holes every day And we had a lot of latitude to kind of put in whatever we found most fascinating.
0: And that was the kind of core principle was like, if it's fascinating to you, it can go in the book.
3: If it's fascinating, uh, we were... So I'm, a, I'm actually a, mostly a novelist, and I grew up in a food family. My parents own restaurants. Um, I've always been a very enthusiastic eater. And so they wanted to put together a book that was narrative about storytelling behind food, mm-hmm. um, not just about, you know, look at this crazy food that you've never seen before. And so what we were really looking for was stories behind these foods. And so you'll mm-hmm. also find in this book that there are foods that you know about
2: that have these amazing histories that you don't know about. Benny wafers. I I grew up in South Carolina, and I I always knew what Benny wafers were, but I thought they were named after some guy named Benny. But thanks to your book, I now know that Benny is a Bantu word that means sesame seeds, and they're sesame seeds wafers because it's one of the many West African traditions that made its way into South Carolina cooking. Bam. Amazing. Exactly. So amazing. There you go. Yeah. I tell this story all the time about
3: the pineapple. I'm, I'm obsessed with the history of the pineapple. Basically, when it first came over to to England. It was like this big hit with the super rich because they didn't have any sugary fruits. They were really into this newfangled fruit. And so it became this kind of status symbol. Hmm. And in in like the 17th century, there was this thriving pineapple rental business because they were so expensive. You could actually, you could rent a pineapple for a party and then just display it. Um, and then you'd have to give it back. And then the person would sell it to someone who was like way richer than you were and could like afford to eat it. I'm just
0: leasing this. Yeah. yeah. Um, someday I'll be able to...
3: Pineapple timeshare. I mean, it, I think it, an 18th century pineapple was like $8,000. Like these were, these were status Wow. Yeah.
0: I want to actually kind of jump into some of the things in the book, um, including one that I know is kind of near and dear to your heart. What's spam jam?
3: The spam jam. Yeah. So it's, it's what it sounds like. You're jamming with spam. It's, <laughs> it's like the biggest craziest spam party and and there are multiple as opposed to the low-key
0: spam parties the kind of sedate ones you'd be
3: surprised there are more spam parties than you than you think there would be but this one's big this one um it's thirty five thousand people they come specifically to celebrate spam it's in hawaii hawaii is where i'm from and Hawaiians actually eat the most Spam in the world. It's like seven cans per person every year, which is oh, a, a lot of Spam. Are you
0: keeping your end of that bargain up? Would you say you put down about seven cans a year? That's
3: kind of a lot. Um, I mean, I, I could, you know, <laughs> like if, if pressed, I could right. definitely do it. Um, so you eat Spam in just like every variety, Spam fries, macadamia nuts with powdered spam. There's spam pastries. Like, anything you can imagine, they're putting spam in it. And then it's just, like, it's along this, like, very fancy street in Hawaii, which I find so wonderful. Spam in Hawaii, there's, like, nothing to be ashamed of. There's, like, sure. spam pride. This is, like, fancy meat. Whereas when I moved here, spam, it it was, like, came as a huge shock to me that, like, spam was not a cool meat. Um, and so it's my people are yeah. are in Hawaii just, you know, like, getting after spam. Do you have
0: yeah. a favorite kind of preparation? Like, for folks that have have not enjoyed spam properly is there a way to to prepare it
3: there's absolutely a way to What's prepare your favorite? it okay so the first thing that you have to remember about spam is that it is a canned meat you cannot just take it out of the can and eat it no one's gonna like that so you have to you have to slice it and you have to fry it you have to get some texture on there so i think the gateway drug to spam is probably either spam fried rice or spam musubis mm-hmm. there's actually a lot of spam musubis in portland which i find just absolutely wonderful um but it's like a, it's like a spam sushi It's rice, seared Spam, usually a teriyaki sauce, seaweed. Mm. Delicious. Yeah, I have to say the first time I had Spam, it
0: was fried, and I was like, I had heard all these jokes growing up on the mainland. It was sort of a punchline, and then I had it fried up in some rice, and I was like, where has this been all my life? It's salty. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) It's like delicious.
3: Mm. People are eating it wrong. I'm really Mm. glad we could have this conversation. Yeah. How Mm. about
0: Miracle Berries? I read about this, and I was like, this can't be a real thing. And then I heard you actually brought some.
3: I brought some miracle berries. Okay, what are miracle berries? They're a fruit that is native to West Africa. They kind of look like cranberries. They kind of taste like bland cranberries. Um, But basically, the miracle of these berries is that you eat them, you kind of coat your mouth with the juices, and then everything that should taste sour then tastes sweet. So that's why I have That's some
0: wonka stuff.
3: Yeah, exactly. We call them tongue drugs. (laughs) <laughs> um, and there's this is the better one. There's another one actually that removes the sweetness from everything you eat, which is oof, why would you want that? Yeah. Wow.
0: Okay so, okay. so can we try one yeah. of these? Um, so
3: take one of those. These are actually these are freeze dried. Thank
0: you. And do you just like uh, just chew it or chew suck it. on it? Or? It says
3: to chew it for 30 seconds, okay. and then the third instruction is enjoy new flavors.
0: All right. Just. Take the mic for 30 seconds. Uh, it looks so. like a
2: pomegranate. pomegranate. Right. It tastes like popcorn at the bottom of the popcorn bucket. Mm-hmm. You know, just like the, like the oh, kernels. Yeah.
0: It's like kind of the one that will go up like, so on your, your back teeth and your gums, mm-hmm. and you're working on it for like two weeks. Okay, what do you think, Cecily?
2: Okay. I've masticated right. it. Okay. Take your so lemon. Now,
0: okay, so now we've got a lemon. So we have, uh, for those uh, listening at home, we've chewed up a, a miracle berry. Mm. <laughs> and... Uh, I don't
2: trust the Miracle Berry. I'm afraid to eat this lemon. <laughs> Give it a go. Do you just
0: bite right into the lemon. This is supposed to make the lemon taste sweet. Sweeter.
3: <laughs> Not a miracle?
0: <laughs> like a lot of miracles, I, I think it depends on who the miracle is being done on.
3: <laughs>
2: no, it does. It tastes like lemonade. It is. Yeah, it tastes definitely. Like lemonade. Did you need more miracle?
0: Maybe like a little eat? bit more miracle, but I can see the effect that it's having. No,
2: I got it. I'm there.
0: Speaking of um, hallucinogenic properties, can we talk about (laughs) mad honey? By the way, uh, this is Livewire Radio, allegedly. Uh, We're talking to Cecily Wong, the co-author of the Gastro Obscura book, A Food Adventurer's Guide. Um, Let's talk about mad honey from Turkey. This is a wild story.
3: Yes. So mad honey from Turkey, it's called deli ball. This is something that only grows on these like high mountains that surround the Black Sea. Um, The rhododendron grows on these mountains and then the bees eat the flowers. And basically the special flower contains a special toxin called grayonotoxin. And it makes honey psychedelic, essentially. It, It causes hallucinations. It causes paralysis. In smaller doses, it's taken as folk medicine. And so it can treat more minor things, diabetes, hypertension, stuff like that. But if you eat too much, which is actually not even that much, it's like a tablespoon, that's when things get kind of wacky. Um, And we know this partly because of this amazing war story from 67 B.C., Emperor Pompey and the Romans were invading what is now Turkey, and King Mithridates and his men were trying to fend them off, and then they had this, like, great idea which was that the Romans were gonna be tired and hungry and they should just like place these mad honeycombs yeah. in their path and so, so they, they did. left
0: out basically spiked honey the LSD honey absolutely <laughs> so that the Romans would find it and be like free honey
3: I mean genius right I mean it yeah. worked and so they so they eat the honey and they lose control of all their limbs they start hallucinating they're all falling <laughs> along the side of the road and then Mithridates and his men they come back and they just they slay him. It's like one of the great sacks of history, and it's like <laughs> honey-related death. Yeah, That's great.
0: I don't, I don't want to die at war. At war. But if I had to, that's how I want to die. Mm-hmm. Just high as balls yeah. on honey. They
3: probably didn't even know what was happening. Just yeah. lying by
0: the side of the road, like, vibing yeah. as my last thought.
1: There
3: are worse ways to go. Right? Yeah. yeah.
0: Let's talk about... Corn Meal Mush Entrapment Competition in South Carolina, in Elena's old stomps of South Carolina. Oh, yeah.
3: Okay, so South Carolina, there's this small town called St. George. I think there's about 2,000 people, um, but their like, big claim to fame is that they eat the most grits per capita um, mm. out of anyone in the world. And so to celebrate this vast accomplishment they have the grits rolling festival and so it's a competition they fill a kiddie pool with three thousand pounds of prepared grits um and they have a competition to see how how many pounds of grits you can trap on your body um you have 10 seconds to roll in this kiddie pool and collect it on your body and so
0: we could have had it all (laughs) yeah rolling in the grits exactly
3: exactly uh
0: I've had a lot of miracle berries, okay? <laughs> I have, I can't speak for what's gonna happen for the rest of the program. <laughs> so they're trying to balance as much grits as possible on their physical body.
3: Yes, and so over the years they've kind of come up with new. Styles of um, grit and, trap and clothing, and so they'll have <laughs> like overalls exactly. Oh, so overalls, you can put it in your pockets and maternity things. pants. You can put it in your pockets, yeah. They'll like duct tape their sweatpants at the ankle, cargo so shorts it won't fall through. Cargo shorts. I don't know if that's worth your time. <laughs> okay, but you know, whatever. They rarely are. Yeah, <laughs>
0: just as a fashion. Elena, as a Southerner, wh- what's your take on grits? And also, is there a preparation of grits that you find particularly tasty?
2: Uh, never instant. N- and for me, never sweet. Okay. I like a savory grit. I'm a butter and salt grits purist. Um, and I like a lumpy grit. What about, what about you, Cecily? Oh. What's your grit p- pro- portfolio? <laughs> your grit profile. <laughs> I, your grit profile. I think it's
3: polenta. Is that blasphemy?
2: No. I mean, polenta is Italian grits.
3: Yeah, okay. As a Southerner yeah. with the
2: last name Passarello, I think I can just sort <laughs> Our, of decree that it's Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, I was surprised to read in this book that the world's oldest sandwich is not from wherever the Earl of Sandwich was from. <sighs> it was actually from China, right?
3: Yes, it is. The oldest sandwich is Chinese. I don't, I don't know where that Earl of Sandwich story happened. That was like 2,000 years too late to be well, the earliest yeah. sandwich. <laughs> that Earl, he was, I want to say an 18th century Earl. This sandwich dates back to like 200 B.C., um it's called Rojamo. It's a very popular street food in China. It's it's all over. It started around the city that's now Xi'an. And that was actually the beginning of the Silk Road. Um and so lots of spices were kind of being traded in and out. And and kind of what's known now as as like a traditional street food rojamo is it's got, like, 20 spices, cinnamon, cumin, bay leaves.
0: Um. It has, like, somewhat thousand-year-old oil on it or something? Yeah. I order that at Subway, and they're, like, always out of it.
3: <laughs> that, that would actually probably do well. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it would pass health inspection here. But essentially, okay, a thousand-year sauce. It's also known as, like perpetual sauce or yeah, it's, it's what it sounds like. You usually cook meat in it. And then when you're done selling the meat or whatever, instead of throwing out the sauce, that sauce becomes the base for tomorrow's sauce
1: uh. and so
3: forth and so forth. Um, and this is done all over the world. Actually, there's a shop in Thailand that does a beef stew and their sauce is 45 years old. Um, wow. And so that's, that's good sauce. I yeah. Mean, that's yeah. I yeah.
0: bet. It's been marinating <laughs> for a minute. Um, what about uh, Champagne? As an energy drink. Where is this going on?
3: I actually asked to talk about this because I love <laughs> talking about this. Um, yeah, I just think it's wild that up until like the 1980s, they were giving like endurance athletes alcohol uh-huh. to to hydrate them. They thought that it hydrated them as well as water, if not better. Um, and so this is like on full display at the 1908 London Olympic Marathon, <laughs> like 57 runners start out and only half of them make it to the finish line because they're all so drunk. Um, and it's just, it's, it's so bonkers. Like there's this front runner, it's this young Canadian runner. He's going to win. Everyone knows he's going to win. And then like mile 17, he accepts champagne cause he's got like a cramp. And of course he, he's, he's out, he falls down, he's out. And then the next person like takes the lead. He's got like this epic four mile lead. He should win. And then he also was like, okay, champagne. And then he's out. Um, Um, And then the winner is this Italian pastry chef. He um, had a ton of champagne. And in the last mile, he's running the wrong direction. He has his heart massaged by a medic. And he's actually helped across the finish line by a doctor. Um, And so that led to a redistribution of the medals. Because that's not allowed, I guess, in the Olympics. Um, And so... Yeah, it's wild. The the 1924 Paris Games, they stocked their rehydration stations with wine.
2: Wow. <laughs> beautiful.
0: That's gorgeous. Yeah. I would run more marathons.
3: There's actually a marathon for you. There's one in the wine region of Madoc in France. You run a marathon, classic marathon, but you stop, I think, 23 times to drink a glass of wine.
0: <laughs> I would yeah. win that. The Venn diagram overlap of being... Kind of okay at running and really okay at wine drinking. That's me. Cecily Wong, everyone, the book is Gastro Oscura. That was Cecily Wong right here on LiveWire. Her book, Gastro Obscura, a food adventurer's guide, is available now. And since we recorded that conversation, Cecily has published a new novel. It's called Kaleidoscope. So make sure you check that one out as well. Hey, special thanks this episode to Elaine Lees of Lake Oswego, Oregon. Elaine is part of the LiveWire member community and is generously supporting our little show with a donation each month. And that is a big deal, which we are very thankful for because it's how we are able to keep LiveWire going. So a big thanks, everyone, to Elaine for keeping LiveWire in business. this is live Wire. of course each week we ask our listeners a question we are inspired by cecily wong's book talking about all kinds of amazing and varied food experiences and so we wanted to ask the listeners what is a yum for you that is a yuck for most other people what is something that you like that you find a lot of other people are not that into elena has been collecting up those responses what are you seeing
2: Okay, this one gets points for enthusiasm for sure. I hope I can convey the way it's punctuated. It's from Barbara. Barbara says, I love raw clams, exclamation point, exclamation point. When I was a little girl, my dad would take me and my two sisters to a clam bar on the side of the road in Yonkers. And we (laughs) would just slurp those things down, exclamation point. Now I'm retired in Arizona. I can only get raw clams or oysters when I go back to visit family in Connecticut, exclamation point.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I would avoid the raw clams in Arizona. Yeah, Just, you know, I mean, not to be no fun, but that just sounds like a safer approach. You know, it's weird. I've never thought, I mean, I've had many, many raw oysters and yet a raw clam hadn't really occurred to me. I I wouldn't imagine it's that different, I guess.
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't know that either, Um, (laughs) but I would do anything uh, with Barbara uh, Mm -hmm. with the level of enthusiasm that she showed for those mollusks.
0: All right. Barbara loves those raw clams. What's another yum for one of our listeners that most people would say no thank you to?
2: Okay, so we have a celebrity entry from an author that we're going to be featuring next week on the show, Joseph Earl Thomas, who his yum is Twizzlers. And I totally understand why this is a yuck for other people because I really want to like Twizzlers. It's like Bloody Marys. like mm-hmm. They just seem like if you go to the movies, you should have Twizzlers. If you're drinking in the morning, you should have Bloody Marys. But I just can't bring myself to enjoy them. Have you Have you really dedicated yourself to the project, though? I really like Joseph Earl Thomas's writing, so maybe I should get back in there and try again. (laughs) I mean,
0: I am a fan of Twizzlers, but in a very weird, specific way, which is they need to be a little bit stale. I think this is because I went to a pretty down-market movie theater when I was a kid, Oak Tree Village, (laughs) and I don't think they had the – they were not resupplying the Twizzlers, like, you know, on the regular. So you'd get a box of them when you were going to see, you know, like – the original Batman with like oh, Michael yeah. Keaton in it, and you get those Twizzlers out, and they're just a little bit stale, but that just kind of adds to the—I don't know—the experience, as they say on those cooking shows. The mouth feels.
2: Maybe I'm eating too fresh a Twizzler. That could Maybe be a that's problem. My issue. Yeah. Well, this is actually related to another one we got. Somebody said that they really like stale Oreos because when they're fresh, they're too crunchy. Mm-hmm. But if they've been on the counter a little and they're soft to bite into, they have reached their peak ripeness <laughs> like Oreos are a banana. <laughs> peak
0: ripeness. That is a term I've never heard associated with an Oreo. Um, but uh, you know, that's a yum for that listener that... Most of us would be like, no thanks. We'll uh, we'll go with the non-stale Oreos, but you never know. All right, thanks to everyone who sent in a response. Uh, we've got another listener question for next week's show coming up in just a few moments. In the meantime, this is Live Wire Radio. Our next guest is a multi-instrumentalist and singer-songwriter whose genre-spanning music is known for its wistful melodies, its hyper-literate lyrics, its virtuosic violin playing, and luscious loop-pedal soundscapes, and... Crystalline Whistling. More on that in a moment, by the way. He's a Grammy nominee. His latest album, Inside Problems, came out back in June of 2022, which was when Andrew Bird zoomed into the show to tell us all about it. Take a listen to this. It's Andrew Bird here on Livewire. Andrew Bird, welcome back to Livewire. Good to be here. Uh, the title of the album is Inside Problems, um, but you're going on this tour, which you're calling Outside Problems. Yeah. Is, is that basically like you're externalizing your odd thoughts to a bunch of people that are going to come watch you?
4: Yeah, that's one one way of putting it. It's also most of the, the shows are outside. I see. So there's a literal reason for that. But yeah, I also made an an instrumental companion album that I often do that goes with the the song album that's called outside problems because it was recorded outside. Yeah. Right.
0: Um, You launched this album with a kind of a short film that I was Mm -hmm. watching on YouTube. And again, it's talking about inside problems versus outside problems. And you kept saying this line, I want to know what you think, but not really. Mm -hmm. But is that kind of how you feel?
4: Uh, It's like the pretense of wanting to know what you think or, or when I, play a show, I adopt a certain posture of like, of a dialogue with the audience. But actually reading the suggestions in the box on the way out of the theater is not something I'm inclined to do. <laughs> it's just the, you know, just setting it up as if it's a dialogue or feeling like it's a dialogue is whole part of the songwriting process for me. Sometimes I'll try a song out before it's finished in front of an audience and I'll be like, I don't know, it could go this way or this way. It's like, uh, I feel like a comedian when I'm doing that on stage. It's like a shrug of the shoulders, like, I don't know. What do you think, folks? You know. You strike me as as a fairly
0: private person and as somebody who is not clamoring for the spotlight or attention, which is, I guess, ironic considering your line of work. But like, what is it like for you to be a person who is a public figure and who plays these shows and thousands of people come and kind of want to talk to you and have a piece of you? What's that like for you?
4: It's a strange thing because ever since I was a little kid in school, I was painfully shy, what they called quiet. But as soon as I would come up in front of the class and give a book report or something, I would be completely self-possessed and comfortable Mm. and at ease to the degree that it was kind of alarming to the teachers. (laughs) Um, It's a strange thing, but I I feel safe on stage. Mm. Until I get on the stage, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know what I'm doing. As soon as I get in front of the mic, I'm like, I know what to do, this is my job, you know.
0: Uh, This is Live Wire Radio, we're talking to Andrew Bird, uh, whose latest album is Inside Problems. Speaking of your career, it it has been really varied over time with doing a lot of different things. I know that you're doing soundtrack stuff now, and and you also, uh, you acted in Fargo, you were great in that show. Were you an actor before that?
4: No, I had never given it a thought. Um, Noah Hawley, who started the whole Fargo post Coen Brothers enterprise, um, saw me play a show in Austin and just cast me on the spot for the funeral director. And uh, he kind of had to reassure me that I I was going to be OK and I wouldn't make a fool of myself. He knew that I had never done it before. And uh, what was cool is like I got there And all these amazing actors like Jesse Buckley and, you know, and I'm in the company of people that really know what they're doing. And everyone just treated me like another actor, you know. Did you uh,
0: ever, like, break out your violin or do something to demonstrate to them what you are really, really good at? Like, kind of like, okay, maybe this is my first time acting, but check out this.
4: (laughs) Uh, uh, I was desperate for something some sort of security blanket at some point. So in the script it had me whistling, right? Um after I, you know, pay off the gangster and mm. think I've I've saved everybody and so I'm pretty proud of myself and I'm walking the door whistling and dancing. And I was like, "Oh, thank God, I can do something I know how to do." <laughs> but it got it got sticky because um I whistled something from Sisyphus and I I wasn't I wasn't really allowed to do my own music. <laughs>
0: So wait, there was a rights issue to a song that you had written.
4: Yeah. And then they brought that up and I said, "Okay, I'll whistle some as if I'm just whistling a, like a jazz solo uh of a tune." So it's it's and even that was too much because I was inventing it myself. So they're like, "Can it just be Camp Town Races or something, you know, something public domain?" Anyway, we we resolved it. It was fine. I don't think that that they were looking for me to showcase my whistling skills so much as just move the story along
0: yeah this is live wire from prx you're listening to a conversation that we are having with andrew bird i'm luke burbank here with elena passarella we have to take a quick break but don't go anywhere when we come back much more from andrew including an incredible musical performance that you could only hear here so stay with us for more live wire Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl gray. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello. Okay, before we hear some music from the one, the only Andrew Bird, a little preview of next week's episode of the show. We are going to be talking about tiny, beautiful things with the one and only Cheryl Strayed. It's the 10-year anniversary of that book, which is also being turned into a television series starring Catherine Hahn, We're going to talk to Cheryl about what it's like being portrayed by an American treasure for the second time. Uh, We're also going to ask Cheryl what it's been like writing as Dear Sugar for all these years. And we're going to talk to the aforementioned Joseph Earl Thomas about his memoir, Sink, which the New York Times called an extraordinary memoir of a black American boyhood. In it, he investigates his childhood and the way that geek culture saved him in certain ways. And then... We'll hear music from the amazing Stephanie Ann Johnson. And as always, we are going to be looking to get your answer to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking in the LiveWire listeners for next week's show?
2: We want to know what advice you would give your past self from 10 years ago.
0: Mm. Mine would be buy crypto, but then sell it, but then buy it again because <laughs> it's back down, but then sell it. My, actually, it would
2: just be be better at finance. Yeah, me too. Exactly. Remember <laughs> that money is real. That's probably. <laughs> I mean, it's not
0: unless you're you know. talking about crypto, in which case it may not be real. It's Who not knows real at this point. <laughs> if you have an answer to that question, advice you'd give your past self from 10 years ago, uh, please uh, send it our way on Twitter or Facebook. We're over at Livewire Radio, pretty much everywhere. All right, this is Livewire from PRX. Um, before the break, we were listening to a conversation we had with the Grammy-nominated musician, actor and world-class whistler, Andrew Bird, Let's get back into that right now. One of the things I love so much about your music is the intersection of science and, mm-hmm. and your music. And you just have this really beautiful way of kind of posing a scientific principle or questioning something in the world of science. Um, in the midst of a song, I'm curious, what's your relationship with like science? Do you have a formal background in that? Did you study that in college or something?
4: No, not exactly. I really don't have any uh, science science background at all. But I like phenomena. My approach to science is like the big picture kind of crackpot theories. I'm interested in things that might tell us what we're made of, whether it be dark matter or... it. They just make nice metaphors for what it is to be human.
0: And when you're writing a song... I mean, are you reading an article in like Scientific American or the New York Times or wherever and you see some sort of large principle about the universe or whatever? Do you like underline it? Do you make a note and think, oh, I could
4: probably work that into a song later? Yeah, it's kind of it's really the 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 popular headlines in science that, are, you know, I'm not... Maybe a, that's why it works for me, because I'm
0: not a big deep diver, but I I'm feel smarter after really not to one either, of But
4: yeah, like someone says, hey, check out this article about, you know, how baby birds practice their their songs in their sleep or something. And I'll, I'll think, oh, that's, you know... I used, I was also a big fan of... Um, well, it's still going this magazine called Cabinet, which uh-huh. kind of, based on a theme, they would talk about kind of um, archaic scientific experiments from the Victorian era or something. That's the kind of stuff that would draw me in that that has like a science-based but kind of a literary bent to it. One of the songs off of this new album is
0: called Atomized, and I was watching it on YouTube, and there's a sort of quote from you beneath the video that says, it's not just about uh, society getting atomized, but it's that the self is being broken apart and being scattered. I'm wondering, was that your version of trying to work out, um, you know, the pandemic or our weird relationship with technology or just like the strange moment of life that we're in right now.
4: I mean, all that, you know, the, the first verse is talking about, um, being sort of unsettled, like sort of shaken from your comfortable perch by that algorithm or, or whatever it is, just some modern life kind of trying to disrupt you and divide you for profit basically. Mm. And then, uh, the, The chorus was, I I happened to just have Beethoven's Seventh Symphony going in my head one day, and I was like, I wonder how that would work as a bridge uh, or chorus to the song. And then I was thinking about, um, you know, uh, an issue that that keeps coming up with me, like the self versus the group, or like, do we live in a society, or like, America's so confused about what individual freedom really means. And so there's that line about... um, is each of us an island or more like Finland? Um, <laughs> and then the, the second verse is talking, it kind of brings it more to a personal level, which I often do. If it gets a little too you know, abstract about technology or geopolitics, I'll make the next verse about like between two people. But yeah, the, the song was just kind of talking about, um, you know, from Yeats' second coming poem to Joan Didion's Slouching Toward Bethlehem essay, and then this is an attempt to sort of update that to the present with technology and social media and, you know. What is your personal relationship
0: with social media? It seems like if there's anybody who has a good austere policy, it's Andrew Bird. I don't know why I think that, but you just seem like a person who wouldn't be obsessed with it.
4: No, I'm not obsessed. I've always been a little arm's length with it. I do do a lot of Instagram posts and I do a lot of my songs, Mm. just casual performances on it, and I'll Post it, but I don't read anything or interact or talk to anybody, and I just try to use it as like a broadcast channel for my own TV show, basically. Yeah. Just think of it in analog, you know, very old school analog way, as opposed to you know getting getting sucked into these worlds. You could have five hundred glowing things, and someone says something nasty, and it just ruins your your week. So I'm a sensitive guy, you know. I <laughs> I don't think I'm cut out for. A, engaging that world full on yeah um okay so we're gonna hear a song
0: uh which song are we gonna hear i'm gonna do make a picture okay and this is off of the new album inside problems Mm -hmm. all right this is andrew bird here on livewire
5: I just want to roll away bold as though the settle was impossible don't you know that I'm an irrepressible optimist working with a fatal flaw running in the streets like farrow cats will be hard to mistake a knee and raise a paw tell us what you think you saw what you think you saw tell us what you think you saw make a picture make a snappy Make a picture Don't look so happy All the scowling faces All those furrowed brows All those burnout cases Make them take a bow Buy some smiling faces Come on and show us how Never mind the braces Love you anyhow Love you many Cries of the wounded metropolis, Danis' intent of hooks Listen to the cries of the pliable populace Giving us some dirty looks Giving us a dirty looks Dirty looks, now they're giving us a dirty looks Make a picture Make it snappy Make a picture Don't look so happy all the scowling faces All those photographs, brows All those burnout cases Make them take a bow I'll buy some smiling faces Come on and show us how Never mind the braces Love you anyhow Love you anyhow Love you anyhow. Love you anyhow. You will never sleep alone. Love you anyhow. You will never sleep alone. Woo!
0: Andrew Bird. That was incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, coming on LiveWire.
4: Yeah, good to see you again.
0: That was Andrew Bird right here on Livewire. His album, Inside Problems, is available now. You can also find out everything that he's getting up to over at andrewbird.net. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Livewire. A huge thanks to our guests, Cecily Wong and Andrew Bird. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines.
2: Laura Hadden is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. Our production fellow is Tanvi Kumar. And Yasmin Median is our intern. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, Al Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer, and our house sound is by D. Neil Blake.
0: Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Elaine Lees of Lake Oswego, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of LiveWire delivered?